Would you please turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. What a blessing it is to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day with God's people, celebrating and setting our minds aright for the week in front of us. Let's hear God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word, trustworthy beyond description, without error, speaking always the truth of God. We are under God's divine obligation to believe it, to hear it, to trust, and to live it. Let's hear God's word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall name, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph woke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. O great God in heaven, we pray that you might impart to us your word this morning. We pray that you would teach us. Grant us the inner counsel of the Holy Spirit of God together with your word that we might believe and obey. That our hearts might be thrilled and we would rejoice. That Christ would take on greater significance to us. That we might increase in our understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ and all to the praise of his glory. In his name we pray. Amen. There are many who do not believe in the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a minister in the United Church of Christ, and she says, this is her book, Saving Jesus from the Church, How to Stop Worshiping Christ and Start Following Jesus. Make no mistake, you cannot do one without the other. That's my assertion. But this is what she says, a beautiful but obviously contrived Tale is the virgin birth which may have been used to cover a scandal. Marcus Borg, a liberal theologian, says this, I do not think the virginal conception is historical, and I do not think there was a special star or wise men or shepherds of birth in a stable in Bethlehem. Thus, I do not see these stories as historical reports, but as literary creations. One writer of the New York Times says, The faith in the virgin birth reflects the way American Christianity is becoming less intellectual and more mystical over time. I I fail to see how refusing to believe the Bible as it's stated and to wrestle with its truth is somehow less intellectual than it is to believe the New York Times. 
Robert Funk, a founder of the Jesus Seminar, which is not about Jesus at all, says we can be certain that Mary did not conceive Jesus without the assistance of human sperm. Now, I don't know how he comes to that certainty, but essentially he is saying human reason is of higher standard than the word of God. Well, I don't want to give any more time to what others would postulate as an alternative to the virgin birth, but I want to make the argument this morning, as I believe the word of God does, that the virgin birth is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. And if you don't believe in the virgin birth, you are not a Christian. It's that simple. The virgin birth, we are told, is only found in two of the four Gospels, and somehow that gives us reason, especially since Paul never mentions it in any of his Acts sermons, Therefore, we don't need to believe it. And I'll tell you, just simply because the Bible doesn't repeat it, let's say, ten times, what is the standard? Eight times? Seven times? Six times? It really doesn't matter. If the Bible says it one time, we are under the, 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 the obligation to believe what God says. Because God has said it. And it doesn't really matter whether or not, or what we think about it, or whether or not we think it's incredible or, or beyond or too fantastically beyond our, our ability to understand, the fact is we must believe it. If you believe that in the beginning was God, then how is it difficult to believe that that same God who was in the beginning and beyond could create in the womb of a virgin a child? When he himself drew up dust over the earth, created dust in the first place, then drew it into a form of his own imagination, breathed life into it, and granted Adam an eternal soul. A virgin birth is nothing in comparison to a God who has always existed and who has always been. If you cannot believe in the virgin birth, then you cannot believe in the God who is the great I am. Well, there is much about Jesus and about much about that is true about the word of God that is under fire today, and the modern church seems willing to give it up. At the very least, let me begin with this. Hold fast to the confession. Hold fast to what you have confessed to be true and have believed in since the beginning when you first came to faith in Jesus Christ. Don't let go of it. If, in fact, you do, you'll lose your soul. By way of exposition this morning, Matthew is writing to a, he's writing to a Jewish audience. And so as he writes to a Jewish audience, it's important that in the first 17 uh, uh, verses, and, uh, he, will, he, will, uh, he, will, he will he will carefully unfold the genealogical uh, trace of where Jesus has come from. And in doing so, what he's doing is he is establishing a genealogical declaration of Jesus' lineage in the line of David. It's no mistake that the, Gabriel, that, that the angel Gabriel comes to Joseph and says, Son of David. He is establishing who Joseph is and what Jesus is and who and what Jesus is himself in his messiahship. He's established already in the first 17 verses that Jesus is the King of Kings. Jesus is the great son of David. 
Jesus is the, the one in Psalm 2 before whom David himself kneels in obeisance and fealty and subjection. Through Jesus' legal connection to, to Joseph, and make no mistake, Joseph is never mentioned in Scripture as the father. Never, not once. He is always mentioned as Joseph, the son of David, Joseph, Mary's husband. Never mentioned as Jesus' father, and he is not. Jesus is the Son of God. Nonetheless, he is the fulfillment, Jesus is, of Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Now this is the birth, we're told in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. It's literally the origins of Jesus Christ was like this. That's what it means. That, that's what literally the Greek text says. The origins of Jesus Christ was like this. This is how Jesus came to be. This is how Jesus, in his humanity, as as the eternal Son of God, robed in humanity, came to be. So the first thing we see as we unfold this text is the conception. Conception. They are betrothed, and usually a betrothal within Hebrew society will take 10 to 12 months. So the betrothal takes place over almost a year. And during that time, the husband will live with his mother and father, and perhaps... Uh, and, and perhaps he may own his own properties, I don't know, but typically as a younger man, he will live uh, with his parents, and the, wife, the, the woman will live with her parents as well, but they will be betrothed. And usually that betrothal took place 13, 14, at the earliest, uh, typically at that early age. And so 13 and 14-year-olds would, by Mother and father of, of the male would search for an acceptable bride for their male son, and then they would write papers and enter into legal contract together with their son, for their son, with the parents, and with this young woman, if she assents, and most likely she would. And that, 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 that legal obligation would be binding. <clears throat> they were more than just engaged. There was... Uh, we live in a society where people get engaged and uh, people call, refer to themselves as fiancés when they have no intention of ever marrying. I run into people like that all the time. And usually fiancé is a description of, well, we, we've, we've been living together and we have a relationship and we have children, but we've never married and we're not going to marry, so we refer to one another as fiancé. That's not at all what this legally binding contract looked like. In Jesus' day, it was an obligatory thing from which one could not be separated without causing significant public scandal. In other words, you separate from this contract, you will not get another spouse, most likely. And if you do so, you'll humiliate not only yourself, but also your betrothed. In this period of betrothal, the two parties were referred to as husband and wife. There were legal obligations. If there is a separation or a writ of divorce, in all these ways, they were obliged. Mary is a teenager. 
She has a sister whose name also is Mary. But Mary is a godly woman. Mary is a godly young woman. If, if you question that, read the Magnificat, that wonderful song of Mary. Uh, she, she knew the word of God, and, and that Magnificat is filled with scripture. There's no question as you examine Mary's life and the statements that she makes and the way that she responds to the angel, there's no question that she is in fact a godly young woman. She is filled with the scriptures. She is submissive to God. There's no accident here that God has chosen Mary as the one who will bear the Savior. Joseph is a carpenter. Is most likely in some form involved in the construction trades, different than our own, but nonetheless working with wood. His father is Jacob. And we're told in the passage here that Jacob is a just man. He's a just man. That means he loves righteousness. He's a young man, but he loves righteousness. He loves God, and he loves the Word of God, because he knows the Word of God, because he responds to it, and hears its fulfillment. And immediately obeys. <clears throat> Joseph is a believer who knew and loved the word of God. He's submissive to the direction of the Lord. He's likely just a little bit older than Mary. They're still living separately. They still have not even having had the opportunity for marriage or for a honeymoon. They have not done this yet. But here is, here is what it says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. There's two things that we would be loath to pass over very quickly. Two things that we need to take to heart very, very carefully. Very quickly, one is the extraordinary importance that God's word puts on sexual purity, dear friends. The extraordinary importance that God's word puts on sexual purity. God is concerned for your holiness and for your righteousness. Young people this morning, I want to ask all of you, pay attention to this. God is concerned for your purity. God is concerned for your holiness. God is concerned that you act righteously. God is concerned that you act as a godly person in the world in which you live. No matter how your friends are acting, no matter how much you want to do other things, God has called you, God has created you, God has put you into this world for one purpose, to believe in Jesus Christ and to live your life for Him. God help you, mom and dad, if you are not teaching and training your children to do that. That is your singular purpose, and that is why God has given you children. To lead them to Jesus Christ. To continue to challenge them with the Word of God. To continue to bring the Word of God to bear upon their lives. Through all the means at your disposal. To bring them to the church and to seek to encourage them to join the church. To nurture their faith. To, to encourage them, and not only encourage, but to tell them they're going to Sunday school. To tell them to come with you and to pray. Even if they don't pray, they hear your prayers. They see your commitment. They see your, your visible example of commitment to the word of God and to, to the body of Christ. To go with them frequently to church. To go with them to bring them to Bible studies. To, to encourage them in the faith. To talk 
in the highways and byways. In other words, as, as we hear that language from the Old Testament, to talk with them as you drive home, to talk with them as you drive to uh, church events, to talk with them as you're riding along in, the, in, in, in your car, to talk with them over dinner, to pray with them, to give thanks to God, to put Jesus before them continually. Mary and Joseph were not incidental occurrences. They had parents who trained them in the things of God. And God blessed those parents with godly children. And if you are faithful to teach your children, and if you're faithful to talk about the things of God with your children, God will bless your efforts as well. He will bless you as you bless your children with the word of God. If you neglect it, then God will, and you don't carry out the means that God has given to you to teach your children and to admonish them in the word of God. And don't be surprised if your children are not godly, if they have no interest in Christ, if you have not fostered that interest. God has given your children means by which they can learn of him. And one of the most significant means by which they may come to know Christ is through you. It's through you. And so teach your children about Christ. You wouldn't think of letting them go through Christmas without having presents under the tree. Would you think of letting them leave your home without having trained them in the, in the word of God, without having shown them Christ? My dear friends, the second thing that we learn in this passage is that life begins at conception. Here is this child. Mary is maybe three months pregnant. She is with uh, Elizabeth, her cousin. They are rejoicing together because God has blessed them. She is aware that Elizabeth is also pregnant. And it says this at the end of verse 18. Before they came together, she was found to be with child. The language of Scripture is not in some way that she came to recognize that her body was growing and that her and that she her, that, that, that the, 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 the sheer real estate of her body was increasing. No, it says that there was a child within her. It didn't say that that somehow she she had developed a, a clump of cells or that in some way she had begun to generate life and growth and yet, uh, at, at, at birth, she would have a child. No, it doesn't say that. Here is this small, singularly undeveloped child and the statement of the word of God, as it says in so many other places, this is a child. It's a child. The unmitigated testimony of scripture is that the child in the womb is not part of the body of the mother. It is, in fact, another person. It is a child. Life begins at conception, and a child is within Mary. And she is with child from the Holy Spirit of God. Luke one thirty five says this from the mouth of Gabriel, the angel that had spoken to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Overshadowing. It's to use that language where it speaks of the earth being formed. And it was... It was void, and and the earth was without form, and the Holy Spirit overshadowed the earth, moved over the earth, and with his power carried out what the will of God and his purpose was for. 
The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. This is not some malevolent presence, but this is the eternal God filling this young woman and creating and generating through his creative word-spoken power this life within her womb. This was a supernatural work, and it was a sovereign work. Our sovereign God can reach into the womb of a young woman to the undeveloped body, underdeveloped body of a young 13-year-old girl and create life. That is what our God can do. And that is what we are called to believe. I believe in the virgin birth. Do you? I believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. And one day, he is coming to judge the quick and the dead. No one else has ever entered the world in this way, just Jesus. By the Holy Spirit, not by Joseph. Well, the scripture is clear. Not by Joseph. Not through normal ways in which children are created. Nope. The Holy Spirit. No father. There is no earthly father for, for, for Jesus. Joseph is not the father. Joseph is told that he is not the father. The world is told that Joseph is not the father. Joseph will live with this. Jesus will too. Jesus will be carrying out his ministry. And the Pharisees will say, we know where you've come from, this illegitimate son. They reference the fact that they didn't that, that, that his father was unknown. His earthly father was unknown. Well, it's not unknown. It's not an unknown fact. He is he's the son of God. He has eternally been the son of God. That standing has not changed. There is no, and we wonder, what, why, why is that important? It's vital in this sense, because if he were born of Joseph, through Joseph's contribution within the relationship with his wife, he would have been born with a sin nature. But you see, he is already a person. He is a divine person. And he does not have a sin nature. Rather, he has a divine nature. He is a divine person with a nature untouched by human sin. And he has two natures within that one person. He is both God and man. One person having both a divine nature and human nature, yet without sin. If Jesus were born of Joseph and through normal procreation of Joseph and Mary, he would be a man just like you and me. He would not be divine. He would not be able to take away your sin because he would not be righteous. He would be born with a sin nature like yours and mine. He would be susceptible to the temptations of sin and we would have sinned just like you and me. If he was able to live an absolutely perfect life, he could never have atoned for his sin nature itself. And he certainly could not atone for you and for me. It was necessary that he be of divine origin, a divine person, so that he could take away your sin and mine. Nothing, absolutely nothing, but the blood of the eternal Son of God could take away sin.
And yet he is born of a virgin. He's born of Mary. Why? So that he could enter fully into the completeness and totality of humanity. That he might be our Savior fully and completely. That he might appeal to us in our humanity. That he might save us from our sins. That he might be able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Millard Erickson states this well, if we do not hold to the virgin birth, despite the fact that the Bible asserts it, then we have compromised the authority of the Bible and there is in principle no reason why we should hold to its other teachings. Rejecting the virgin birth has implications reaching far beyond the doctrine itself. The earliest record of views within the church are A.D. 104 and on. Ignatius, Justin Martyr, earliest creeds and council of the 370 A.D. and beyond. The virgin birth was never questioned. It was never doubted until the post-Reformation period when liberal Christianity somehow began to make concessions to the world. Well, don't you make that concession. Make certain that you hold fast to belief in the virgin birth. It's important because of the fact that the rest of the scriptural record affirms it. Acceptance of divine provision, the truth of prophetic fulfillment. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 affirm that he would be born of a virgin. virgin. Behold the virgin. Behold this will be the sign. A virgin will bear a child. The miraculous sign of the inauguration of the kingdom of God in Christ is there for us to see. It's essential for the faith. He came from heaven. He was not of this world. He was sinless in his birth. He was not born with a sin nature like ours. He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And he lived and he died in order to set us free from our sins. And this is where you must begin, dear friend. Do you believe in the record of Scripture? Do you believe in the virgin birth? Do you believe that there was a Savior born of the Virgin Mary without a sin nature? And it was precisely this way so that he could render his life an offering for sin. So that he could free us from our sins. So that he could save our very souls. The second thing that we see in this passage is compassion. It's compassion. Joseph is a just man, and he's unwilling to put Mary to shame. He becomes aware of the fact that she's pregnant. Three months, in fact. I don't know who told him. I don't know how she became aware. he became aware. But somehow Mary must have said, after Gabriel spoke to her, Joseph, I'm pregnant. I have a child present within my womb. Can you imagine how crushed Joseph must have felt? Here he is, and for all intents and purposes, what he has to believe is that Mary has, in fact, never having observed a virgin birth before, that Mary has been with another man. Someone has had to have made her pregnant. That must have been Joseph's initial thinking. But he's a just man. He's a godly man who's filled with kindness, even to the point of suspending what is within his right to do. He's a man who loves mercy, who acts justly, who walks humbly before his God. And I'll I'll tell you, dear friends, this, all you young persons, here is an example for you. 
of a young man who, though deeply hurt, though deeply hurt by the fact that his wife, whom he longs to know, has, in his understanding, in some way become something that she was not beforehand. And thus he has lost out on something. He has lost out on the privilege of being the father of the firstborn of Mary. He will have to surrender significant rights as this story progresses. He will have to name his son, not after himself or his father, not his son, but Jesus, who in illegal right is his son. Although in reality and according to the flesh he is not. He would have to name this boy, raise him as, as his own child. He would have to support him. He would have to name him by the name which was commanded by God. He would have to abstain from marital relationships with his wife, physical, until this baby was born and thereafter shortly. But he's a young man who walked humbly with the Lord. And so as he took all of this in, he has choices. Mary, Mary. He could marry Mary. And he would have to live with the humiliation throughout his life. Two, he could stone Mary. Old Testament Levitical law under the appropriate assumption of infidelity says if a young woman is found to be married, uh, found to be with child, she's to be stoned if she has had relations outside of marriage. Thirdly, he could bring about a public and scandalous certificate of divorce as a means of protecting his own good name. He could he could make it known to everyone. My wife is pregnant and it was not with me. I will stand before God and affirm this in vows and promises before the Lord. Thus, he would maintain his own reputation. Or fourthly, he could give her a quiet certificate of divorce and severance of relationship and obligation and quietly do it so that she is not stoned and accept in some form the embarrassment on himself. All are completely legal and within his rights. And this is this was Joseph's choice. It says, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Planned. I think the word is, is more significant in, in the original language. It's, it's that he resolved. He had decided. This was Joseph's choice. This was the plan. I want you to see the compassion, though, of Joseph here, despite a perception that he might, that she might have been unfaithful to him, despite the seeming appearances of things, despite what he is about to lose in some sense. He's going to be gracious to her and quietly, quietly, as a means of protecting her, quietly divorce her. There's incredible, uh, incredible humility and compassion for this young girl, evident in Joseph's determined plan. And this is an example we all need, quite frankly, who through, though within our own rights to respond in specific situations and in specific ways, we are commanded by God to act in a compassionate, kind, gracious, gentle way. These are the fruits of the Holy Spirit that we have been given. God commands us to do it. To love mercy, to act justly, and to walk humbly with our God. 
There is no more higher privilege in all the earth than for each of us to suspend our rights and to be compassionate to each other. For us to forgive one another, to overlook offenses, and to be gracious to each other. And if we have experienced the grace of God, doesn't that immediately yield its fruit in us as we deal graciously with each other? And if we have not experienced the grace of God, then certainly there's a hardness about us and about our character. Thirdly, we see communication. Joseph has a dream. And it's an interesting thing. It's not a vision. It's not like Ezekiel. I was reading Ezekiel this morning in my devotions. And he's awake, and all of a sudden he is carried by the Holy Spirit to some place, and he sees, and he observes, and he communicates. It's not this. This is a dream. Joseph is asleep, and he's dreaming, and his mind is, has entered into, into REM, whatever you call it. He, he's, he's out. And as he's dreaming about things, and you know, having two left feet and flying up in the air, whatever your dreams are like, whatever my dreams are like, odd dreams, weird things, immediately entering into his dream is Gabriel, and he speaks to Joseph and says, Joseph, son of David. Joseph is conscious enough in his sleep to know that what he is seeing is an angel of God. He speaks to him and he says, son of David, he has simply come into Joseph's dream. And it's important that Joseph recognize that this this child, this child which is not his, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say your child, he says the child, the child child of God, the son of God, the son who is the son of the father, the eternal God. He says to him, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, Joseph. Joseph, this is a sovereign, secret, supernatural work. She will bear a son, not your son, a son. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. will save his people from their sins. And this is where we come to commission. <clears throat> Not only is Joseph commissioned, he's called to obedience. You shall call his name Jesus. You shall marry this woman. You shall not do what you have purposed in your heart to do. You shall not follow on in your plan. You will marry her and you'll call his name Jesus. And you shall not be with her physically, but you will take her as, as your wife. It's a call to obedience. And oftentimes we are called to obedience even when our faith does not understand. Faith will never come to a complete and full and total understanding of God. And yet we are commanded to believe in that same God. 
To believe in a God who has always been, who will ever be. To believe and to affirm with our heart, with our mouth, with every affection, I am is true. I am is right. I am is good. I am always has been. I am is God. This is who He is. But there is also commission for Jesus. He is Emmanuel, we are told. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. There's some of us this morning who think sometimes that God is against us. You need to learn anew and remind yourself again of that great name, Emmanuel, God with us. My God is with me. My God is with you. Your God is with you at all times and in all things. Because He is Emmanuel. He is Emmanuel. This is the who and what of what Christ will do. God with us simply means this. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus. Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament, Joshua. And that name means Jehovah saves or Yahweh saves. Literally, Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. God with us in our nature, in covenant, in communion, in bringing us to himself and us to him and he to us. This is who and what Jesus is. This is what Christ is. This is this is who he is. He is God and this is what he has come to do. He has come to seek and to save. And the language of scripture is clear. And, and it's uh, I don't want you to miss it. He will save his people from their sins. Didn't the crowd say of Jesus, as He hung upon the tree, as He hung in His bloodied corpse upon the tree, He is, just before He died, in fact, as His body is about to die, He has saved others. Why can He not save Himself? Indeed, He could save Himself, but He would not save Himself upon the tree because His intention was and His calling and commission was to die for you and for me. He was called to die. And so no matter what people said, his commission was to die for sin. He will save his people from their sins. If he did not die on the cross, he would not save you from your sins. You and I are to be most pitied, Paul says, because in fact we are still in our sins if Christ did not die.